If you've got your Bibles, turn with me this morning. Revelation chapter 12, as we continue our study entitled Unconquered. Let's stand as we open God's Word. I'm going to read verses 7 through 12, and we'll set the context in the chapters that precede this, and then I'm going to zoom in for at least the the last portion of the message and focus on one verse, uh, verse 11 this morning, and I think holds a key to generations past, present, and future uh, of how to defeat the enemy in our lives. Uh, Look at verse 7, it says, then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. The dragon and his angels also fought. That's the devil and the fallen angels, the demons. But he could not prevail. And there was no place for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was thrown out. The ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. The one who deceives the whole world. He was thrown to the earth. And his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, The salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah have now come because the accuser of our brothers has been thrown out, the one who accuses them before our God day and night. They conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives in the face of death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you with great fury, because he knows he has a short time. Father, as we come to you in prayer this morning, we pray that you would give us wisdom in your word. Not only make us hearers today, but help us to be doers tomorrow and every day. Lord, show us not only how to survive, but how to be overcomers, to be victorious over the attacks of the enemy. In this life, Lord, we know ultimately for eternity you have already won the victory. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated this morning. You know, in the Christian life, there are a lot of things that we learn about endurance, and certainly as we study the book of Revelation up to this point, we talk about unconquered. We think of almost a defensive stance that we have as the enemy attacks us, that we will be unconquered, we will be undefeated. And a lot of the Christian faith has to do with enduring, of, of uh, overcoming that which is coming against us, a defensive stance. And then we learn that there are times that we need to be gracious, we need to forgive, be forgiving, we need to turn the other cheek, take it on the chin, and just keep going. But there often comes a point in time in life where we're saying, I'm tired of being on the defensive. I'm ready to take it to the enemy. I'm ready to go on the offensive. Now, when it comes to people, (laughs) church, when it comes to brothers and sisters in Christ, or when it even comes to those who don't know Jesus Christ, we have to be reminded constantly that our battle is not against flesh and blood. So we are never given the higher ground or given any kind of leverage at which we should attack flesh and blood, our brothers and sisters in Christ, or humanity that doesn't know Jesus. We are to be patient. We are to endure. We are to turn the other cheek. And we, we are, and I'm not saying just live a life where we're being run over, but we are to be Christ-like in, in every way, realizing that our battle, that our warfare is not against flesh and blood, but against 
powers and principalities, the devil himself, rulers of this present dark world in which we live. It is a spiritual battle. But when it comes to the spiritual enemy, then we do need to learn how to go on the offensive. And we're not to always take it on the chin when it comes to the battle against the devil himself. I remember watching the the movie A Christmas Story. Every Christmas, it'll come on just like a a marathon, you know, 24 hours straight. A Christmas Story. You know the the movie I'm talking about, Little Ralphie Wants the Red Rider BB Gun? Well, there's a scene where he gets tired of being bullied. I mean, he's been bullied, he's been bullied, he's been bullied, and finally Ralphie is fed up. Ralphie has had enough, and, and Ralphie just unleashes himself on the bully, And and we all, while we all would say we would never teach our kids to do this, we all smile a little bit as the bully is just getting his face beat in a little bit because there's something in our hearts that is screaming for justice. This has got to be made right, and that's enough. And again, while we're never told to do that against flesh and blood, there comes times to where we don't want to just keep taking it from the devil himself. I I think of uh, other movies like Rocky. You know, where he beats the Russian, there's a scene, this is uh, definitely a, a scene out of Hollywood, right? But where he's just proven that he can take it, and he drops his gloves, and he's just letting the big Russian hit him in the face left and right, and then so Rocky comes back, and, and finally he, he starts throwing some jabs, and we're, we find ourselves saying, how long are you just going to let this big boxer beat your face in? When are you going to start fighting back? And so again, there's something in us that says, how long do I just have to keep taking it? When it comes to the enemy, when it comes to the fact that we're under satanic attack, we learn something in this scripture here that teaches us how to be on the offensive, how to see that the enemy will be conquered in the end, is now being conquered in the battles against you and me, and has been conquered in the past. And so the record of this battle is found and what we would call a few interludes in the Revelation narrative here. As we read this story, as the apocalyptic visions are unfold, there are interludes, there are moments, if we avoid strict chronology of Revelation, to where it's as if the author John is saying, in all of these visions that I'm saying, meanwhile, we used to have a little phrase when we changed subjects, we'd say, meanwhile, back at the ranch, or, uh, for, for those of you who really have good memories, uh, meanwhile, back at the Hall of Justice, anybody know what that's from? Super friends, right? Meanwhile, back at the Hall of Justice, we might would say, meanwhile, back at the Hall of Justice, justice is being served to the devil himself. And, and so when you, uh, you go back and you look at chapter 7, you see this unpopular remnant, the 140,000 Jews that come to faith in Christ, that become evangelists. The second half of that chapter, they're leading Others, uh, Jews and non-Jews alike, to faith in Christ, and they come to know the Lord, and they are the martyrs. Uh, Actually, the 144,000 are protected, but many that come to faith in Christ end up willing to die for their faith. In chapter 11, we see the story of the two witnesses that I referred to just briefly last week. But they come in the spirit, it seems, of Old Testament prophets realizing and making known to the world that Jesus Christ is the Messiah and those two witnesses Many believe are Moses and Elijah. Some have even argued that it perhaps was Enoch and Elijah uh, with a strict interpretation of the, the Hebrews verse that said is appointed unto one man once to die. And they say, well, Enoch and Elijah, they never had to die a physical death, right? They're the two that just kind of uh, prematurely just went on up to heaven without having to physically die. So some have said Enoch and Elijah. Uh, I believe these two witnesses are probably Moses and Elijah are two in the same spirit of uh, Moses and Elijah that come 
and they're eventually martyred themselves. But after three and a half days, it says the world sees them laying in the street for three and a half days. Now, if you go back a couple thousand years or even a couple hundred years ago, you would say, how in the world did the world see them laying in, everybody around the world couldn't see the streets of Jerusalem and certainly couldn't have seen them laying in the street for three and a half days, but that was before the days of CNN and Fox News and everything else that we have today. So now we're like, yeah, certainly the world could see them laying in the streets for three and a half days, but they're resurrected after three and a half days, and then they're prematurely raptured again, brought on up to heaven. And so we see that scene, those witnesses, and then in chapter 12, this discussion of the woman and the dragon is a picture of Israel ushering in the Messiah. It almost looks like the birth narrative of Christ when you read that passage, you know, where Jesus came into his own, John 1.11, but his own received him not. However, John 1.12, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. So it's almost like a birth narrative, but here it's as if the, the Jewish remnant, those who come to faith in Christ, during this tribulation period, now usher in Messiah, not as the suffering servant when he comes again, but as the conquering king, the king of kings and lord of lords who comes on the scene to put an end to the devil's reign and a beginning to the millennial reign of Christ. It's all kind of pictured there in those first six verses. And then what we just read a moment ago, the devil is losing the battle in the heavenly realms. Remember? He is called the prince of the power of the air. So when he was kicked out of heaven as the eternal dwelling place of Almighty God, the first time Isaiah 14 records his fall, when he is kicked out, it's still as if he is in the heavenly realm, so to speak, in a spiritual realm. And at this point, he's going to be kicked out to the earth. We've read about that. Uh, those fifth and sixth trumpets and, and how he unleashes all kinds of terror upon the earth during those days. But he is losing more and more of his ground and his stronghold. Remember, he is always operating under the sovereign hand of Almighty God. Uh, he has to have God's permission before he can accomplish anything. And here, his last war, his last combat is with humanity. And believers don't just endure and survive, they conquer. It says, they conquered him. In verse 10, we read a moment ago, God gets all of the glory for this. What takes place in this time, the victories over the enemy in the past, the present, and the future are all because Jesus Christ is our victorious warrior. He's the one who has always going to battle for us. So God gets all of the glory because the accuser of the brethren, it says, has been thrown out, the one who accuses them before God day and night. So they, they're exalting Christ, says our God and the authority of his Messiah in the midst of that. And then we zoom in on this one verse this morning. So rather than try to tackle all of these passages and pull all of these principles together, I think you'll see the key Right here in one verse, verse 11, they overcame or they conquered him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives in the face of death. Now, while I believe that Revelation is very prophetic here, I believe it's apocalyptic literature speaking of the consummation of the ages, and it shows us how the saints will get victory over the devil 
just before the, the return of Christ at the end of the tribulation to establish the millennial kingdom, others would argue that this is a picture of the, what was experienced in the first century, those churches that were being persecuted for their faith. Either way, the principles are the same and applicable as much today as they were in the past or will be in the future for how you can conquer the enemy in your life. And so let's just look at this text. By the way, the enemy is still, 1 Peter 5, 8, speaking to the church age, your enemy, your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And so while I believe God has all power, I believe the devil has some power, and I believe he's very active, and com- though his power is not infinite like God's compared to us, it is infinitely stronger than we are. So we need to know that he's real, we need to know that he's active. We can go back to read this text again, go back to verse 7 and following, and you'll be reminded that one-third of the demons, or one-third of the angels that fell, the, the fallen angels, the demons, along with the devil himself, can't really toe the line with Michael the archangel and the angels that were summoned into battle with him. So God's angels are stronger than the devil's angels, be aware of that. But God himself and, and Jesus Christ is infinitely more powerful than Satan. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. So what do we do? How do we get victory over the enemies attacking our life? Number one, stay close to the cross. That sounds a little simplistic for Christians, but stay close to the cross. We can't emphasize this enough. Stay close to the cross. Look what he says. They overcame him how? By the blood of the Lamb. The blood of the Lamb. They overcame him. Romans chapter 8 and verse 31 says that we are more than conquerors. In the Greek, it's who pairs. We get our word super. We are super conquerors. Conqueror, nikao. We get our word Nike from that. So we are super conquerors in Jesus Christ. And so they conquered him. They overcame him. Same word here. By the blood of the Lamb. The the blood of Jesus Christ, the cross of Christ, made all the difference in the world for those first century Christians. The blood of Jesus Christ, the blood of the Lamb, will make all the difference in the world in that last battle, and it makes all the difference in your life and in my life today. We have to stay close to the cross, church. We have to stay close to the Lamb of God who was crucified for us. That's important for our salvation. We can't draw near without that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18, Paul says, hey, this message of the cross that's foolishness to those who are perishing. You can read the, 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 the leading atheists and skeptics today, and they have entire dissertations of how they make fun of the church because we worship a God who was crucified on a cross. Paul said that was the way it was in the first century. It's foolishness. It's ridiculous. It's a crazy story to those who are perishing. But he said, for those of us who are being saved, it is the power and the wisdom of God. Remember the hymn, Oh, that old rugged cross? So despised by the world has a wondrous attraction for me, for the dear Lamb of God left his glory above to bear it to dark Calvary. Remember the chorus, I will cling to the old rugged cross till my trophies at last I lay down. Have you come to a place in your life where you just want to cling to the old rugged cross? 
Will you cherish the old rugged cross till you can exchange it one day for a crown? We need to stay close to the cross of Jesus Christ. So it's not only important for our salvation, but it's important for our sanctification. It's important for victory over sin in our daily lives. In Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, Paul says, I am crucified with Christ, therefore I no longer live, but Jesus Christ now lives in me, and the life I live in the flesh today, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In other words, we live our life under the power and under the inspiration of the fact that Jesus Christ paid for our sins on an old rugged cross. They overcame the enemy by the blood of the Lamb. It becomes our inspiration for victory in this life. Look to the cross when life gets tough. You, you look to the cross when the enemy is attacking you. Remember going through a, a difficult season of life? What are some of the hardest things you've ever had to do? Did you look to the cross? What are some of the toughest battles? When I was in high school, I thought getting the grade was one of the toughest things I'd ever have to do in life. Man, and then you get out of school and life really hits. I, I remember those summers of uh, football workouts, and I didn't think there was anything more cruel than having to run sprints. One sprint after another, after another, after another. Right, Coach? Man, just... I had to keep running those sprints after practice. And because somebody else didn't do their job, we were running until some of us have to go over to the side and, and kind of feed the birds for a little while and then come back and run a little bit more. I thought, man, and, and I remember in those days when I was in high school and I thought, man, we can't, and, and by the way, they didn't have any rules back then about uh, heat index and get the kids in the air condition and things like that. It was just, you just run and run and run. And, and I thought, man, I can't. But I would try to imagine Jesus Christ carrying a cross, and I thought, well, at least I'm not being crucified. Close, but at least I'm not being crucified. But then you get out of high school, you get out of college, you get into real life, and you think, well, I'd, I'd take those school days back any day. I'd take those days of those long runs and football practices, and I'd take those days of, of trying to make the grade and please the teacher. I'd take that back any day because what I'm facing in life now with this relationship, with this financial situation, with this battle, this attack, as the devil himself raises up his head, you're thinking, I never thought I would have to face anything like this. Do we still look to the cross? Do we look to the cross of Jesus Christ? They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. What about when we're tempted by that old familiar sin? Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, do we quote that and look to the cross? Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, do we lay aside every weight in the sin which so easily entangles us, and run with endurance the race that is set before us. That's beautiful track language, right, Coach Hall? I mean, that's a great track passage right there, the running the race set before us. But then what does he say? Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. We've got to stay close to the cross. We've got to fix our eyes on Jesus. And when that temptation, when that sin is difficult to lay aside so that we might press on for the glory of God, we've got to get our eyes on Jesus. We've got to stay close to the cross. When the accuser of the brethren, you notice that title that's given to the devil here? The accuser of the brethren. That means one of the ways the enemy is going to attack you is tell you how sorry you are, how bad your past is, and how you have no hope for the future. I love the old t-shirt that used to say, when the devil reminds you of your past, remind him of his future. And 
we see him as the accuser of the brethren because he's going to tell you, you remember that sin? You know, if you come to faith in Jesus Christ, the Bible says he has cast our sins as far as the east from the west. And so while the devil is trying to point that sin out, God's saying, what sin? Not because he is forgetful, but because he chooses not to remember that sin. So when the accuser of the brethren tries to tell you, well, this is what you used to be, this is what you are, this is all you ever hoped to be, then we look to the cross. And when we look to the cross of Jesus Christ, we were reminded that's where Jesus died for my sins. We remind the devil of Romans chapter 8 and verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so I don't have to live under condemnation. And so how do I overcome the attacks of the enemy? I overcome him by the blood of the Lamb. I stay close to the cross. Secondly, I need to stand boldly on my confession. We overcome him when we stand boldly on our confession. Look at the verse again. They conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. The word testimony there, some translations say witness. It's the word martyria in the Greek. It's the same word in Acts 1.8 where it says, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will be my witnesses, martyres. We get our word martyr from. That's very comforting, isn't it? It's where we get our word martyr. It just means witness. That we stand boldly on our confession of faith. And we make it known to others. Your testimony, your confession must be very real. Very real. You need to know that you know that you know that you've put your faith in Jesus Christ because when the enemy is attacking, it's got to be real. See, the enemy will begin to kind of weed out those who aren't for real and those who are. Romans chapter 10, verse 9, if we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead. See, it can't just be a verbal confession. It's got to be real. Your confession has to be real. It's got to be real in your heart of hearts. You have to know that you know that you know. You've put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. If you don't have that confidence, if you're not confident of your salvation, how are you going to stand with confidence when the enemy begins attacking you? And if he's not attacking you now, he's about to attack you, or you just came through an attack. And so your, your, your confession has to be real, first of all. Secondly, your confession has to be relational. It's relational. It's shared with others. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus is asking his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they're starting to, well, one of the prophets, maybe John the Baptist, they're, they're naming uh, various claims of who Jesus Christ is. And Jesus says to his disciples, but whom do you say that I am? Remember how Peter responded? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That was his confession. And he was standing on that confession. Jesus would describe that confession as foundational when he said, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Flesh and blood didn't reveal it. Peter, I, we know you. You didn't just figure that out on your own. My Father who is in heaven revealed that to you. And then Jesus said this, on this rock. The rock was not Peter. The rock was the confession that Peter made. On this rock, the confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. I will build my, build my what? Church. See, it's relational. Church, the called out ones, the body. It's body life. I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. There's a picture there. By the way, gates don't move. Gates try to hold the ground, right? And so 
here's a picture of our overcoming with our confession of faith in Jesus Christ because we're assaulting the gates of hell. We're pushing back the darkness in our lives, in our families, and in our world. It's not that we, you know, I don't know if anybody here lives in a gated community. But the gates are to keep people out. It's, it's the, we don't walk down the street and say, those gates are attacking me. And so there's a picture here of the, this relational confession. The church is pushing back the darkness. And so we're not just to endure satanic attack in our lives. We're to overcome and push the darkness back for the glory of God to set others free. So your confessional has to be real. It has to be relational. And finally, your, your confession must be reasonable. In, in Romans 12, we're told in verse 1, Paul says, I urge you by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable act of worship. This is the only thing that makes sense. It is responsible. Here's something that's interesting to note. In, in 1 Peter chapter 3, where Peter is addressing the church that's being persecuted in the first century, that's under great attack. Peter wrote before John wrote Revelation, and he wrote about those days under the uh, attacks of the emperor Nero. And he said, in the midst of that, be ready to give an answer for the hope that is within you. Stand your ground. What, do you, what does it mean to give an answer? The word there is apologia. We get our word apologetics. What was Peter saying? He was saying, when it comes to your confession, yeah, it's got to be real. It's got to be real on the inside. It's got to be relational. It's shared with the body of Christ, the believers. But it's got to be reasonable. You need to be able to explain what you believe and why you believe it, and you need to be able to defend it. And parents, I've said this so many times. Grandparents, I've said it again and again and again. And, and, and I can't say it enough. But it no longer works with the millennial generation for you to say, we believe this way just because we were raised this way. My grandparents believed it. It was good enough for them. My parents believe it. I believe it. And I'm going to give you that old-time religion, and you're going to believe it too. Sorry, it doesn't work for them. And, and there's a generation of kids today, uh, of high school students, college students, and, 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 student, and, and, and young people in their 20s who have abandoned this confession of faith, the faith that Jude says was once for all delivered to the saints, not because their parents weren't devout Christians, but because when they had tough questions about, why do I believe what I believe? Why, how do I know all this is true? The parents didn't look for answers. They just said, well, you're not supposed to question God. You're not supposed to doubt God. You just got to believe it. That's, there's a generation today that's got to have better answers than that. It's got to be a reasonable faith. And so Peter says, know, know what you believe, know why you believe it, know how to defend it, be able to give a defense for it, be able to stand up and be that professor's worst nightmare that's trying to say there is no God. Know what you believe, why you believe it, how to defend it. Or you will rationalize away your faith while you're under attack. Stand boldly on your confession. It's not always going to be easy. We're reading here about people who are willing to die for their faith. Leighton Ford wrote a story referring to what he called the, the most uh, impactful martyrs that he had ever studied. 
the, the story is of the 40 martyrs for Christ. Some of you may have heard the story, but in about 320 A.D., the emperor, Roman emperor Licinius had basically said all of our soldiers have to bow down and worship pagan gods, give pagan sacrifices. There were 40 Christian soldiers who were part of the Roman army at this time that said, we will not bow down. We will not be a part of this pagan worship. And they said to Licinius, you can have our armor, you can have our bodies, but you cannot have our hearts. So this emperor had them taken to a frozen lake to where they would stand out. And they were stripped down of their clothes, placed out over that frozen lake, and they were only allowed to come off of that frozen lake if they recanted. To come off the lake meant to say, I deny my faith in Christ. So the the Roman soldiers who were guarding to make sure they stayed on the ice were overwhelmed when these men began to chant, 40 martyrs for Christ, 40 martyrs for Christ. And they would huddle together and try to keep warm as long as they could in the most humiliating fashion, but it was the chant, 40 martyrs for Christ until one passed out on the ice, left to die. They heard 39 martyrs for Christ, 39 martyrs. And one by one, they would succumb to the freezing temperatures, and another one would fall out on the ice, 38, 37. Martyrs for Christ. Until there was one left, and with the other 39 having died, the legend has it that this one martyr walked off of the ice and said he couldn't endure anymore, and he recanted his faith in Christ. Reverend Ford, when he relays the story, he says there was one Roman soldier, though, that because of this incredible faith of these martyrs, said Jesus must be real. Jesus must be the Son of God. Perhaps he'd been grappling with it for some time. We don't know. But this one soldier who was keeping guard walked out onto the ice himself took off his clothes and began to say, one martyr for Christ. And later when the bodies were removed, there were 40 martyrs for Christ removed from the ice. We get upset if somebody makes fun of us. We get upset if we might lose a job because of our faith, because of our confession. We're going to overcome the enemy. We need to stand on our confession. We need to stand boldly on our confession and not compromise. Know our stuff and not compromise. And finally, I think this story also illustrates what we see in the closing of this verse. They did not love their lives in the face of death. Suffer willingly for your commitment. Now it doesn't sound so easy. Paul says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection in Philippians 3.10. And and we would say, yes, Paul, I want to know that too. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. And you can scan the television channels across all the religious networks and you can find somebody telling you how to have victory today and how you can be 
healthy and how you can be wealthy and how you can be very uh, prosperous in this life and everybody love you for who you are and have all the popularity in the world that you want, but they're not going to tell you that Paul followed up when he said, not only do I want to know the power of his resurrection, he says, I also want to know the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. They did not love their lives, even in the face of death. Not only did the Apostle Paul say, I am crucified with Christ, therefore I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. He said to live is Christ and to die is gain. Remember the story in Acts chapter 5 where the disciples were told not to preach in the name of Jesus anymore, and they kept on doing it anyway. Peter and John were taken before the council, and after they were reprimanded, it says they were beaten with rods, and as they walked away from being whipped and scourged, it says they went and they protested in Rome and said, that's not right. No, that's not what they did. They said, let's all be sure we vote for the one who's going to establish the greatest religious freedom. That's not what they did. They went away rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. They went away rejoicing that they were beaten for their faith. Are we willing to suffer willingly for our commitment? Matthew chapter 5, you know the Beatitudes, and a lot of times we stop short of the last one. Verses 11 and 12, Blessed are you when they insult you and persecute you falsely, or and falsely say all kinds of evil against you for me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. For that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Suffer willingly for your commitment. They refused to deny the name of Jesus, Revelation says, even in the face of death. That's the way these martyrs stood in the first century. That's the way they will stand at the consummation of the ages, and that's the way we get victory over the enemy today. We don't back off from our witness, regardless of what verbal abuse we have to take. Whatever it may cost us relationally, it could be that for somebody here today, you're like, man, I would rather be beaten with a rod than to have the kids in middle school make fun of me for my stand for Jesus Christ but they didn't back away. Some of you would say, I'd rather be beaten with rods than to think it might cost me a promotion to take a stand for Jesus Christ. They didn't back away from their confession. They suffered willingly for their commitment. It may be easy to stand and preach this now. What about when I'm told, and we may be inching closer and closer to this. Actually, we're not inching anymore. We're taking strides closer and closer. If I stand up and preach and I say, God, has established Jesus Christ as the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through Him. And somebody says, you're intolerant and you're going to lose your tax-exempt status. And I say, listen, and the way we picture the gospel in marriage is when a marriage is between one man and one woman for a lifetime, and they say, it's going to cost you. You could go to jail for a hate crime for saying marriage. You say, oh, we're far from that. that it's happening in our world today. Will we take a stand? Some of you know the story of Jim Elliott, his wife Elizabeth Elliott, who after his death remarried, wrote lots of books and, and, and touched a lot of people. And She went to be with the Lord recently, but remember how Jim lost his life when he went to, as a missionary to the Alka India tribe and 
was speared to death. It was made famous that in one of his journals in college he had written, he is no fool if he would choose to lose what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. Are we willing to suffer for our commitment? Are we willing to say whatever it's going to cost, I'm not backing away from God's word. I pray that we'll stand boldly. No matter how trivial or how intense it may seem, that which it's costing you, that we'll stand boldly on our confession. We'll be willing to suffer for our commitment. God will use this church to make a difference in our world. Would you bow your heads with me?